Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silent forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost. Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated. A not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself, Dr. Joe If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to help. So, Prost, Welcome to episode 11 of The Penis Project. Today we speak with Professor Declan Murphy, who is a consultant neurologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Declan specialises full-time in GU oncology, prostate cancer in particular, and his private practice is based at Cancer Specialists in Melbourne. Declan is also a co-host of a podcast called GU Cast with Dr Renew, which is well worth a listen. You'll find more details in our show notes. Also this week, as an added bonus... We will talk to Dr. Joe, who has put together a special edition of Pelvic Floor for you all, which will follow this interview. Thanks. Hope you enjoy the show. Yeah. Good morning, uh, Declan, Professor Declan Murphy from the Peter Mack Centre and Cancer Specialist Centre in Victoria. It's so wonderful to actually speak to you. Melissa Hadley Barrett and I are great fans of yours, and um, we want to just run through the opportunity in the month of November to actually chat to you about men's health in a in a couple of different ways. Firstly, uh, your introduction, and we really want to know a little bit about what you do over there in Melbourne at Peter Mac and any research or anything you might be involved with. Just just a bit of a general overview, Declan, if you don't mind, of where you're at. Well, hello, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I must say I've been really enjoying your podcast uh, since you went live a couple of months ago. So congratulations. I think you fill a really nice void uh, in supporting our men uh, post-prostate cancer. And I I think that it's a a great initiative. Um, So keep up the good work. That's uh, the message from here. We've Um, we've had a lot of fun doing it, Declan, and met a lot of great people. So it's been good. (laughs) Terrific. Um, So... Yes, I'm a urologist and uh, director of GU Cancer here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, and I'm a full-time prostate cancer uh, specialist. So my interests range really all the way from diagnosis to very advanced uh, prostate cancer, uh, and I, I'm very familiar with the patient journey across uh, that whole spectrum from early detection right up to uh, very progressive disease. Wonderful. So one of the things that um, was brought to my attention, we met at the ANSYS conference in 2011, where you, the, you were the keynote speaker. Um, and I had a 10-minute chat and it was a little bit confronting at the time and quite a number of uh, urologists actually came up to me afterwards and said, Joe, thank you so much for that 10-minute overview and your feedback. The talk was called Feedback and Future, Your Radical Prostatectomy Patient Based on My First 800 Cases as a Physio. My great concern was the variation in quality of life outcomes for men, particularly the incontinence and the erectile dysfunction 
back in 2011 or 2005 when I started, the sexual function wasn't really being addressed. The continence um, function always is the primary thing. But over the years, I've actually found men are equally, if not more, concerned with their sexual function. And with the advance of the robot and all the various techniques, um, I can't actually believe the quality of care that now exists. So I have something I call the Eureka patient. That's a man that comes into me. He gets the opportunity to do some physio for about a month. He has the, either the robot or, uh, you know, radical prostatectomy and experienced hands. And he ends up fully continent and with full erectile function from day dot. Now, this is something I thought I might see once in a career, but I do see it quite often. The advances are just huge. Um, quality of life, I'd love you to have a comment about that. Just That's my take on things. But every man is unique and we work with the symptoms before us. Yeah, so your input on all of that. Yeah. So look, I have to say, you know, and you have had some some of those patients on the podcast, but I think we have to be very careful about the expectations we raise for men going Absolutely. on this journey of having surgery or radiation. And to be honest, the reality is those patients are far and few between, really, yes. at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, there are... Say that. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting you say that. I was speaking to a patient just yesterday who's having a rough time and he said, I really wish you'd interview a couple of people like me because I feel like when I listen, everyone else is having these great outcomes and I want to hear someone tell it. So that's the next job. Well, it's really important because I think it can be a bit confronting for people if they read too many of these good news stories, because then they may have their own expectations unrealized as they go down the journey. And as I say, I, you know, I think in summary, uh, by far the, the most common outcome for people uh, diagnosed with localized prostate cancer, having treatment for what presumably is a significant cancer, is that there is a price to pay for quality of life. And more often than not, it is in a loss of sexuality of some sort, whether that's erectile dysfunction uh, or, or so on. But it, it's really, really important that we recognize that. And every, every prostate cancer outcomes uh, longitudinal study in the world has confirmed that, that this is the price to pay. We, we saw it in the PCOS study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that you know, 10, 12 years after this type of treatment, whether it's surgery or radiation, you know, only a tiny proportion of men are still enjoying sexual function. So I think we have to be very careful about, um, you know, we love our champions. We love these Eureka patients because they can help in uh, letting men know that there is a, a brighter future ahead for some of them. But let me tell you, my, my view as a full-time prostate cancer specialist is they are far and few in between. And I actually prefer to set very realistic expectations for patients around sexual function in particular. And of course, if they exceed those expectations, great, everybody's happy. But if they have unrealistic yeah. expectations because they're hearing yeah. these great stories, then they will be unhappy. Even if they have what might be considered a reasonable result, uh, if their expectations are set too high, it's a problem. So it, it, it's still quite sobering, I think, to see, yes, we get the cancer right nearly all the time. Yes, we get a very good continence result uh, in our hands most of the time the vast majority, but yes, sexual function is a really big problem for the vast majority of patients. So Declan, when you're speaking to a patient initially, like when they're deciding their treatment options, what sort of, because when you look at the research, the statistics are so varied with sexual function outcomes, what sort of, you know, people always ask, what, you know, what's my chances of getting my function back? What, what do you say? What's your 
Yeah, so so you're so right, Melissa, and it's so important to individualize these expectations because people may already have come with a bit of pre-reading and done a bit of uh, searching themselves, and you know, a few clicks one way you find yourself in these good news stories, and a few clicks the other way you find a lot of reality. So you have to understand individualize. And that's my first message. But um, you know, what if patients are opting for surgery for their their significant prostate cancer? I, was, I say to them, there are three things. Uh, that determine the likelihood of them recovering erectile function afterwards. And two out of these three things, actually, we have no control over. Uh, First of those is the age of the patient. And the world over, every multivariable study has shown that older patients are less likely to recover sexual function than younger patients when they go through the exact same operation, same extent of nurse experience. So so you can't control what age you are uh, when you unfortunately... Yeah. So 72, you know, average age of patients we operate on is 61. Uh, so we have a spectrum, of course, but every single study has shown that the farther you are above 60 versus below 60, the less likely you are. So that's the first thing I say, you know, what age are you in? The second thing we can't control is baseline function, as we call it in medical terms. In other words, how good are the erections already? And it's not unusual, of course, that when you really dig into this and say, well, okay, if you don't mind me asking, tell me a little bit about your erections. And they say, well, you know what, they're not as good as they used to be, or it's quite difficult to achieve one, or I have difficulty maintaining one, and the Viagra helps, and so on and so forth. So so then you understand these patients in many circumstances are on a bit of a sticky wicket. Um, And if that is the case, then again, same thing I said before, if they have the same operation as somebody who has very good spontaneous erections, their outcome is completely different. You know, it's been shown the world over, Baseline function is the second thing that really determines outcome. And then the third thing is the thing we have some control of, and that is the quality of surgery. You know, the, the, the extent of nerve sparing, if any, bilateral, blah, blah, the experience of the surgeon doing the nerve sparing. But it's only one of the, the three components. So it's really, really important. And we love when we have a younger patient with very high quality erections who can have bilateral nerve sparing. Uh, but the reality is that is not every patient, you know, uh, big bulky disease you know, et cetera. So we have to set the expectations realistically. And, and, you know, for our population, that means that it's often quite significant cancer. In other words, they may not be able to have nerve sparing on one side or, or so on. And it may well be a slightly older patient and it may well be the erections aren't as good as before. And guess what? You put those all into the pot and mix yeah. it around. And it means that yeah. the likelihood of that patient recovering reasonable erections two years after surgery is, is low. I just wanted to ask you one more question about that then. So this is something that I've been pondering and I can't find anything in the research about. But when I see young men, you know, like I've recently seen a few guys in their late late 40s who I consider young person in my age, and um, they do seem to recover much better for all of those reasons that you've just discussed. And so then that brings me to, are those patients better to just get on with the treatment if they have, you know, moderate grade cancer or are they better to be on active surveillance because if you're thinking about they're going to recover better if they're younger then it's it's like I can't really find an answer to that question. So it's a great question, isn't it? And and look, one of the one of the most important things that's happened in the past fifteen years for uh, for my consultant practice has been the, the rapid uptake of active surveillance and indeed the widening of the inclusion criteria of active surveillance. Because guess what? The best way to preserve sexual function following a diagnosis of localized prostate cancer is not to have any treatment at all, um, because there is always going to be a <laughs> yeah. price to pay. You have yeah. surgery if you have radiation, even if you have it, you know, nerve sparing. You have a younger age, less, you know, etc. So 
active surveillance. That's why we're such keen fans of it. And we've published a lot of data about active surveillance. And indeed, Australia has very good uptake of active surveillance by international standards uh, as we talk here in 2020 uh, compared to 10 years ago when it was hardly present at all. So active surveillance will always be the most important thing. But you raise a good point. So let's say it's somebody who is a bit younger, maybe has a family history, dad died of prostate cancer. They may still have a cancer that's suitable for surveillance, but they're thinking, right, I'm 55, dad died age 68. I don't, I don't want to go down. I want to have treatment. I understand I probably will opt for treatment at some stage. Should I go now and not be on a surveillance program that might require another biopsy or two? Uh, or should I just stay on surveillance knowing that that's the best way to protect my current quality of life? But maybe when I eventually need treatment, maybe there's a bigger hit. And look, you can't say that for sure with any certainty, but I will always come back to my opening statement that active surveillance is the best way to maintain your sexual quality of life uh, faced with a diagnosis of localized prostate cancer. So when you weigh everything up, if it looks like the cancer is one that is safe for surveillance, uh, then that's what you should do. And, and I think that's going to be the next 10 years is how we do surveillance for even more patients, maybe in a less obtrusive way, not requiring maybe biopsies every couple of years. Uh, that has got to be the future if we can use that strategy to balance up making sure people don't have a bad cancer outcome, but preserving their quality of life by having them avoid treatment as much as possible or until it's really required. Uh, and then that might be an intervening extra five years of having good quality of life before they eventually might have treatment later on in life. Yeah, I think, I'm sorry, Joe, I'll let Joe speak next and ask one more question. Um, I think also the quality of life is a big issue because even with active surveillance, because there's this stress of it all. Anyway, PSA, PSA anxiety is actually an opportunity for me to just step in. In fact, I always said PSA anxiety because even my dad has been living by a number for a few years um, post-radical prostatectomy. We have a strong family history. So many men come in and they're very concerned, uh, you know, with the numbers start to rise, especially after radical prostatectomy. And, you know, there's baseline numbers that fly and change every month all around the world is when it's correct to start some more treatment. My question is that I get asked all the time, and in fact, I do a lot of education. So say we have the average patient 61 in Australia, I actually really encourage uh, that patient to talk to her family members, the men and uh, sons and brothers, just to inform them to look out for that, you know, genetic predisposition. But the classic question always comes up, and it's from the November, um, September um, statement, position statement, sorry, from about 2014 with, 2013 with Stacey Loeb and the whole crew at the um, World Congress. I was there for that. So, so my question, Declan, is we get asked every every day, when is it appropriate to start testing for PSA? Because all the guidelines are quite different and variable. And, um, yeah, I'd really appreciate, just for the everyday bloke on the street, where, where should he start? So good point. I'll come to it in a second. But Joe, I might pick up uh, just what you said at the start there about active surveillance maybe being a, a bit of a difficult uh, proposition for some people due to stress and anxiety. Oh my God, I've got cancer. Is, it, what, what, is sure. surveillance okay for me? And we we recognize that. We've published a lot about that. And, and um, on one of our podcasts a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed uh, the team from the Navigate study. Um, uh, and maybe we'll include a link in your show notes. But I think um, we actually should. That would be wonderful. 
Yeah, because Navigate is an NHMRC-funded online decision aid for people who are suitable for surveillance, but they're stressed about it. And we had this, you know, competitive funding because people recognize that we need to support these people a bit better. So for listeners out there um, who are diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer that are concerned about it, they can enroll in the Navigate study. Uh, It'll be open for another six months or so. I think there are 300 uh, patients. We'll be be promoting that widely then. Yeah. Yeah, and you can do it from home. You just Google Peter Mac Navigate study and you come across it. But the, the, the podcast is very informative. Um, so I think if there are people out there worried about surveillance, we recognize that can be a concern. Uh, and really, those people need to be better supported. And that's partly what Navigate does and PCFA does and Cancer Council does. But or get a second opinion, something we'll always say, because, you know, going for treatment uh, just to relieve anxiety is usually a failure of uh, mm-hmm. information. Really, I find, you know, that those patients just need to be better supported. But we still recognize there's going to be five or eight percent of people who just can't sleep at night. They can't cope with surveillance. Sure, no problem. But we must exhaust all the options to support these patients um, so we can preserve their quality of life because, you know, their risk of dying of prostate cancer is not is not going to be significant. So the second point, early detection, of course, still a hot topic. And let me tell you, having just uh, stepped out of a meeting uh, earlier this morning with the the Victorian Cancer Registry here, um, COVID is having a very profound effect on early detection. Um, Yes, yes. Yeah, you might have seen last week, Cancer Australia published a a national report um, showing the impact on lung and prostate cancers uh, of the initial COVID period from March until June, showing like a 25% decline in diagnoses. Um, but at the end of June, there were signs of recovery. But in Victoria, of course, where we've had a prolonged lockdown, we now have data up until the end of October showing that that 25% drop in diagnosis has been maintained now for nine months. So that means uh, here months. we'll probably, yeah, so, so it's very cumulative. So it means we'll probably have more than more than a thousand patients in Victoria that would have been diagnosed in the past nine months that have not wow. been diagnosed. They're still out there. So the early detection. That's going to be a game changer. Mm. Yeah. So COVID is going to put an extra uh, blowtorch, I think, on our messaging around early detection because there's a bit of catch up to do, actually. So here are just a few, you know, without putting alarmists on it, it's been important that we stayed at home. What's the real story here? It's it's just important that men still um, pay attention to their their risks, um, and it's not just prostate cancer. You know, this this is a population who also need to have their blood pressure checked and their cholesterol checked yeah. and so on. But I think the uh, the, the decline in prostate cancer diagnosis uh, in Victoria shows us that men are not going in to have a chat with their GP about their general health during COVID. And what we just need to make sure now that things are easing is that people do get back in the habits of having a checkup. And on the prostate side of it, you know, I think um, there is still certainly confusion out there in general practice. There's conflicting messages about the value of having a PSA test and so on, but there is agreement that men uh, should be uh, given uh, information so uh, they can make an informed decision about the pros and cons of having a test, uh, shared decision-making as we call it. Um, And, and, you know, I think that's really important. So have that conversation with your GP. And of course, Mm -hmm. we would say that there is real value in a fit, otherwise fit person, especially if there's any extra risk factor like a family history uh, in them having a a PSA. And I usually say to men, go and have that chat when you're 50. uh, Or if there's a family history, go and have it when you're in your 40s. There's real value in that. But, um, you know, that, that is the message. It's not that there should be widespread testing automatically when you turn 50 as happens with bowel yep. testing but yep. everybody should go and have that chat and get your cholesterol checked at the same time and i always say your hard health and your heart health are related so any changes in your penile function good idea to just check in and maybe get your heart tested but 
we have a big campaign over here, always try and get our patients to shed five to 10 kilos pre-op if possible so we can get that um, post-op continence load a little bit better as well as easier for you guys trying to work with the structures and the nerve um, sparing. Uh, I've just got one quick question. I know you have to go. Uh, there's, a, there's a new cyber knife over here in Western Australia and I think you've got this similar stereotactic radiation um, for the more advanced um, cases or, you know, could be the, the lower cases are a little bit more specific. Do you mind just giving us a little quick um, insight into where, where things might be heading uh, for more focal therapy, I guess? And also, when you talk about the cyber knife, could you also speak to the sexual outcomes with it? Because that's a little bit confusing, I find, as well. Well, WA has led the way with uh, CyberKnife, which is a very fancy bit of radiation kit, uh, no doubt about it. And of course, the technology has been around for quite a number of years, but it's expensive. And um, mm. really, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't had uh, routine care in most cancer centers. And so I think the only proper full-on CyberKnife, that's a commercial name, uh, is still in WA. But effectively, right, it is I a type didn't of... Realize that. Yeah. yeah, effectively, it is a type of uh, stereotactic radiotherapy, meaning you can give high doses in very focused amounts. So patients have um, less uh, requirement to be running in and out of the hospital every day for six or seven weeks and so on. Um, uh, but, you know, the, there is no data to, this is what we say to our patients, there's no data to yeah. show that um, going for CyberKnife, going overseas or going to WA for CyberKnife will deliver a better outcome than having very high quality radiation delivered by their local radiation service. And really all around Australia, we have extremely high quality uh, radiation services because they're quite centralized. You know, there isn't a, a linear accelerator in every local hospital and there are operating theaters in every local hospital. Yeah, yeah. So radiation by, by its nature tends to be invested in high volume centers. And so uh, sure. we usually refer people to say, look, your, your local uh, regional cancer center or metro cancer center um, uh, has very high quality technology. And, and a lot of it is just the software. It's, it's, that's what improves the planning is you can deliver higher doses. So the stereotactic technologies we have around here are TrueBeam STX machines, which again are just a commercial name for a very fancy linear accelerator. Um, it just doesn't have the name knife in it like CyberKnife does. Ah, I, always, yeah. I always poke fun at radiation oncologists saying, you're trying to sound like surgery by sticking the word knife <laughs> in the middle of your radiation thing. You know, radio surgery, cyber yeah. knife, you know, you sound yeah. like surgery. But no, all Hi. kidding aside, it's, it is very nice technology and um, yeah. uh, it is wonderful to have it in WA. But I, you know, what it reflects, I think, uh, summarizing it is that uh, all around Australia, actually, there's been a continuous improvement in, in uh, radiation technology, especially the software going with it. And, and I think people should be very confident all around the country that uh, the, the, the radiation they will be offered is of the, the highest quality. And just, you, you just have a better machine in WA. Well, interestingly, Western Australia is often known as WA or wait a while. So I'm absolutely delighted to hear for once. We're actually a little bit <laughs> ahead of you guys. <laughs> Sorry, a uh, little bit of uh, yeah, rivalry. Uh, Declan, I have one question. My adored colleague, Patrick Lombroso, who passed away of a uh, brain tumour, who was a psychologist specialising in prostate cancer, um, he, he got a glioblastoma. And I managed to interview him for a few hours before he passed away. And I asked him, if you had one comment to make for a man newly diagnosed with prostate cancer, what would be your statement? And he said, don't panic. And he also said, I've only got 5% chance of living 12 months. So if only I got diagnosed with prostate cancer, it was a pretty humbling conversation. 
But I'm going to put that to you, being the world-renowned specialist you are, the convener of the Asia-Pacific Conferences, the International Congresses. You even marked my PhD because I had such honour and I wanted you to have the opportunity to strip, strip my work apart if it needed to be to make it better outcomes in my work. So just that final question, I guess, what would you advise a man today if he was diagnosed with prostate cancer? Yeah, it's very sobering hearing those comments, isn't it? And uh, I usually use phrases along the line of, uh, this is not the end of the world. It's a bit of an inconvenience. It happens mm-hmm. to us men as we get older along the way. And look, the reality is we, uh, nowadays, uh, more than 90% of newly diagnosed prostate cancers uh, in Australia uh, are localized to the prostate. So we still have a very, you know, really quite impressive early that's detection. Awesome, isn't it? Yeah, that's according to the Movember PCOR report, which is a great annual read. Movember give a great snapshot of what's happening in all the registries around the country. So we that is that over, yeah, and that is over ninety percent of our patients. We're saying to them, "This is not the end of the world. It's confined to the prostate." And for a whole chunk of them, maybe up to one third of them, we're actually saying to them, "You don't need treatment at all. Uh, you've got a low one grade." One third. Cancer. Okay, great. Exactly. And and then for the rest of them, their cancer is confined to the prostate, but it's not a low-grade cancer. It's one that we would usually be saying to them, look, if you're otherwise fit and the average age at diagnosis in Australia is about 67. Um, uh, the average age of the men we operate on is about 61. But so the average so right. 67-year-old, you know, early retirement, uh, perhaps uh, maybe grandkids, you know, uh, good quality of life, good life expectancy. Most of them, uh, if their cancer is a significant cancer, one that we don't want to just keep an eye on, um, I'll say to them, you have two good options. You can either have surgery or some form of radiotherapy. And we very much try and have equipoise when we propose those options. And I'll always, always encourage people to go and get a second opinion from a radiation oncologist or indeed from another surgeon. So I think that's one of the messages is that getting a second opinion is always of value. It's not an emergency to book in for whatever treatment is being recommended. In the first case, you always have time uh, to uh, get a second opinion. So even if you're going with the first option, you'll at least yeah. understand I've got all the information. I'm going to sleep comfortably with this because the chances yeah. are you're going to live for very many years afterwards uh, free of cancer for most of these patients. But it's really important to make sure that you feel you're well informed about what that journey is going to be like. And circling right back to what we we opened with, you know, for for us th- still the biggest issue is that we have to counsel men that uh, erectile dysfunction uh, is a is a big reality, uh, certainly in the short term, and for many men in the longer term. After what otherwise might be successful cancer treatment with a good recovery of continence. Yep. So continence. Sorry, I'll say that again. So cancer, continence, and erectile function is the order that we, you know, educate our patients on. And well, we've talked a little bit about that thing, but yeah, it really depends, Joe, doesn't it? Because you know, you can't presume that that's the order, and uh, because of course it is the order for for lots of or people. Or the priority, the should I say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but let me tell you what I also sometimes say to patients who, who and, and most of our patients are second opinions, and they'll often come in the door saying, well, it looks the cancer, I'm really worried about the cancer, you know, we've got plans, I've just retired, um, and the continence, you know, I, I don't want to be wearing pads for the rest of my life, I, I would like some That's reassurance. That's what we hear first, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the erections, you know, I, I, that, I, I really don't, I've heard about that, I really don't mind, but this is what I say to them, you know, if their cancer looks favorable, I'll say, um, uh, first of all, you're, you know, you're very likely to do very well from a cancer point of view. Second, you're very likely to do very well from a continence point of view, albeit there may be a few months of, of uh, recovery and so on. But I'll say, you know, very likely there's going to be a problems with the erections, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, and although you've said to me that the first two things are most important, guess what? 
when those patients yeah. come back six months later, a year later, ah, they're cured of the yeah. cancer, they're fully continent. You know, the first two things, the things that they identified as priorities have been dealt with and they're going to live for another 20 years. And guess what? The third thing does become dominant. So I like to say that to patients beforehand saying, I understand your priorities. I agree with them. Yep. We know we, we think we can deliver well on them, but don't underestimate, uh, uh, you know, how much you might, uh, you know, um, be dealing with the erectile dysfunction that you might say now that's the third party. I don't mind, but it's going to be the number one priority uh, for the, the next 20 years because, because we usually deliver a really good result on the first two. So, so having you know, realistic expectations, making sure we've exhausted surveillance as an option. I think these are the, the really important themes. Yeah. The thing I always hear is that as well. Thank you so much, Declan. Uh, Declan, we uh, adore you here in Western Australia wide a while. You're a champion uh, of men's health uh, globally, and we are so honoured to have you on the Penis Project podcast. And, um, yeah, we'll be putting lots of links to your work and look out for Declan. He's what I consider the world leader. Thanks so much. Thank you very Thanks much. So much. Keep we'll up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Dr Joe Milios. We're going to have a quick 101 anatomy lesson of the male pelvic floor. What I want you to do is wherever you are, sitting, lying or standing, just think of what it's like to completely relax your belly and your buttock muscles. Try not to hold any tension in the abdominal area at all. Don't worry about taking your breath in or out. Just sit gently with yourself. Belly and buttocks relaxed. Now gently squeeze the front urine passage as if you're stopping the flow of urine. And gently think of what it's like to also now draw the testes up or lift the nuts to the guts. Very gently, I want you to at the same time think of drawing the penis in towards you. And putting all those three things together will actually help focus on the front urine sphincter for actually helping male urinary consonants. So just again, let's start wherever you are with a relaxed belly and buttock muscle. Gently squeeze the front passage like you're stopping the flow of urine. Gently draw the testes up and penis in, lifting your nuts to your guts. Very gently, just let everything drop or rest. We're going to repeat that 10 times. So it's squeeze, lift, draw in, and let go. Let's do that about 10 times at about one second pace. Squeeze, lift, and draw in, and let go. There shouldn't be any action going on in the abdominal area. There shouldn't be any movement in the shoulders or hips, and nobody should be able to hear you or see you actually doing this exercise. That's what we've called the fast twitch component of the pelvic floor, getting a bit of training. This is really helpful if you have any leakage issues in coughing, sneezing, starting or stopping flow and breaking wind or sitting to stand as many of my patients do after their prostate cancer surgery. But we also need to train something called the slow twitch fibres. And that's pretty much exactly the same exercise, except we're just going to be holding on rather than doing those short, fast, quick nuts to guts exercises. So starting again in that resting position, relaxing the belly and the buttock muscles and very gently just squeezing the front passage, drawing the penis in and the testes up. This time, I want you to count out loud to five to keep your breathing. One, two, keep holding that pelvic floor up. Three, four, five. And just gently relax that. It's really important to rest it for the same length of time. So let's rest for the same five seconds. Two, three, four, 
five. And let's pick that pelvic floor up again. Squeeze and lift and hold. Nuts to guts. Two. Keep breathing. Three. Four. Five. Let go. Let's rest. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. And we're going to repeat that ten times. So one set per day is going to be ten fast nuts to guts exercises and then ten slow. Holding for five seconds is a good place to start with an equal rest time and then building to 10 seconds holding with a 10 second rest time would be an aim. I like all my patients to do at least three sets of pelvic floor exercises a day in any position. But if there's any problems, it might need a little bit more uh, positioning and standing or functional activities like walking. If there's any pain, sometimes we need to reverse all of this. We need to do something called down training. But we'll leave that for another quick anatomy lesson. Five or six times a day is recommended through research if you do have consonance issues. And this can be also applied to the bowel. So if there's any bowel incontinence, simply add in the back passage by gently squeezing the front and back passage all at once as if you're stopping wind. So putting all that together, aiming for one set at a time, which is 10 quick, followed by 10 slow. Repeating that three times a day as a general maintenance, or a little bit more, five or six times a day if you have a problem. It's always important to seek professional advice if you have any pain, or find that it's really quite difficult to get any assistance or movement, movement at the station as a lot of men like to say. A helpful self-technique is to stand naked in front of a mirror at home and just once again relax your belly and your buttock muscles. See by gently squeezing the front passage and drawing the testes up that you notice a rise up of the scrotum and a gentle retraction of the penis. You shouldn't see any a big gross abdominal action, hip moving or shoulders, and there shouldn't certainly be any um, dancing sort of um, mumbo jumbo going on. Next, it's really important to have a little feel. So what you can do is gently place your hand in the squishy sort of area between the anus and the scrotum, and that's known as the perineum. Gently just tighten or squeeze by placing your fingers in that spot. Squeeze the front passage, gently lift, and you should feel everything tighten. Now let go, and it should become squishy again. So squishy is normal. Tighten, draw up, and it firms up a little bit. And then you should get that relaxation effect. Leave it with you to practice, but be sure to send this information to your mates or have a little chat with them on the side. Say, guys, do you know about the nuts to guts exercise? Because it not only helps improve your bowel and bladder function, but goes a long way to improving erectile function. And that's something we'll be covering in another whole episode in itself. Prost. Gonna tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Dr. Joe here. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We aim to release one podcast per fortnight, so please keep in touch so you know when new podcasts are being released. Also, be sure to check out the show notes below so that we can all keep the conversation going. Campfires and bugs Smoking bark in a cubby up a tree Try to ignore Fading of the light
don't wanna go home so soon. 